Welcome to The Coaching Kool-Aid and part two of our series on meditation and mindfulness. This week, we continue to look at the criticisms leveled at these practices before bringing the discussion firmly back into the realm of leadership and developmental coaching. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Good. You're good. Yes. I greatly enjoyed our conversation with Alex last week. Yes, it seems like so it wasn't that long ago. I know, doesn't it? <laughs> Time flies when you're mindful. Yeah. For those listeners who didn't hear that conversation, go back and listen to it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> if you can't be bothered, we spoke to Dr. Alex Norman about mindfulness and meditation and a whole bunch of interesting things that go along with those problems of definition etc we finished that conversation by looking at the way that mindfulness and meditation practices can be commodified and one of the primary arguments against this is that they can be used to support unethical systems yeah and alex actually referred to it as abusive he did so that was in a corporate sector mm-hmm. that we were looking at and specifically we were looking at ways in which organizations can uh, supply mindfulness training to their employees in order to reduce their stress but ultimately in order to push them further mm-hmm. so it's kind of similar to what we're talking about with michael kavanagh in terms of resilience mm-hmm. taking away people's resources whilst giving them a lifeline i think as you were saying yeah Another big criticism that comes out a lot is that not only do mindfulness programs sometimes put the onus of stress on workers and sort of giving them this band-aid solution, critics also suggest that helping executives to focus on their own internal world through mindfulness practices, particularly by being present, stops them from bringing their awareness to the struggles and suffering of others, which they could potentially help to alleviate. So in other words, it anesthetizes them even further to the suffering that they could potentially prevent. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's a fair critique? Yeah, I do. I think it's certainly a possibility. I I don't think that's what it's trying to do. An unintended consequence. An unintended consequence, yeah. 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 I think it's interesting that there have been also critiques of mindfulness and meditation levelled against the Japanese army during World War II in which Zen meditation practices were used to help soldiers face death with greater equanimity. Mm. So the argument there is kind of the opposite, interestingly, not that it's getting people to focus on the self as it is with executives and to ignore the system, but to it was getting soldiers, encouraging them to meditate on their lack of self, mm. or their lack of ego, and thus their inconsequential nature mm. or the inconsequential nature of their own death. Dying for the greater good. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the take-home there is that any practice can be used to support any ideology, really, because humans are basically masterful manipulators. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I just think it's interesting within the coaching space because I just think what I see happening to friends and partner, that kind of thing, is that these programs of mindfulness are rolled out, you know, with all good intentions, I think, mm of this is going to be good for you and um, this is all part of our well-being program but ultimately is it coming back to a bigger goal which is the control of people's minds in the industrial age we were more concerned about uh, controlling people's bodies or, or maintaining people's bodies so they could work harder longer faster stronger 
Now we've moved into this age where we need people's minds to be active at all times. There's no place for stress. And so it's profitable in the long run for companies to invest in these programs, but it ultimately puts the onus back on the individual to deal with their own stress by, you know, becoming more mindful. Mm. And I, yeah, I guess I'm just stuck in between the the spaces of well surely it's better than not having anything and that it numbs people to systemic problems absolutely and people are less likely to say wait a minute i'm just working too hard Mm -hmm. you're just giving me too much work to do or this managerial system doesn't work that's right or for managers to say hang on i'm working my team too hard yes exactly so i don't know i just whilst i've always felt that the research behind having a mindfulness practice is valid there's a whole lot of problems with it that i think i've only just begun to uncover Mm. yeah something else that I want to talk about is mindfulness programs having been instigated in the military, which is something that a lot of critics are enormously disdainful of, primarily because, you know, within the Buddhist tradition, there is the tenet of nonviolence. It's very much an ethic of where this mindfulness comes from. Again, we've talked about Japanese soldiers, so it depends on the context. But yeah, it's caused outrage amongst many people who say that this goes against the Buddhist ethic of nonviolence. But the counter argument to this, I think, is pretty interesting. And that is that if mindfulness helps to make people less reactive and more prone to slow thinking and contemplation, couldn't such techniques ultimately help to prevent the kind of cowboy knee-jerk violence that results in the deaths of innocent civilians all too often. And also, I mean, don't we want returned soldiers to have some healthy coping strategies for all the obvious reasons? Mm. But then similarly, what we were talking about in the last session with Alex is providing returned soldiers with mindfulness techniques, encouraging rumination on what they've been through. Like, is that actually more harmful? Well, again, that's going to come back to who they're practicing with. How nuanced is their approach to mindfulness practice Mm -hmm. where did they get those techniques from that's true how are they practicing it how are they practicing it and what's the goal yeah something that i think would be interesting to unpack a little bit more that we talked about with um alex or touched on was that the distinction between meditation and mindfulness Mm -hmm. i do think that it's an important distinction to be made particularly within the coaching space as well because the two are used interchangeably. And I'm sure that it was John Kabat-Zinn that says mindfulness is the end point and meditation is one pathway to achieve mindfulness, but it's not the only pathway. In that sense, mindfulness is that state that we were talking about, yeah. a state of consciousness, yeah. and meditation is the practice that can enable that consciousness. Yeah. But then yeah. does that mean we couldn't have mindfulness techniques? Because I feel like Mm -hmm. that's quite different to meditation. Because to me, again, I think meditation, if you're not doing it in a religious context, the only kind of meditation I would encourage clients to do would be the kind that is inherently reflective, Mm -hmm. which is certainly not about non-attachment. As we talked about with Alex, that's about being critical, having critical reflection. Mm. Because there are so many terms, maybe the take-home for that is be really clear with your clients and with your peers during supervision what you mean by this term. How are you using it specifically? Yeah, you know, I'm a fangirl, obviously, of Michael's. But I really do keep coming back to his and Gordon's chapter, Mindfulness and Coaching, Philosophy, Psychology, or Just a Useful Skill. They make that important distinction when they're trying to sort of I guess, define mindfulness, that it has four definitional categories, which are this philosophy of mindfulness, which is the system of beliefs, 
the practice of mindfulness. So mindfulness is a deliberate process or a set of behaviours. The state of mindfulness, so the the cognitive phenomena that is mindfulness, which is that end point that I was just talking about, or the trait of mindfulness, which is mindfulness as a habitual predisposition towards experience. That's the only one that I find a little bit problematic, but yeah. That's like the Dalai Lama. That's how I picture <laughs> okay. that, right? It's like you're in this constant state of enlightened mindfulness. Well, I don't even think the Dalai Lama would say this yeah, is true. a constant state of... If he true, was in, true. He, what I appreciate about articles like that is that they do actually say, okay, there are huge problems with definition. Yes. Here are some categories, and, and they're very clear in that article about what they mean. So They are. The point of that being when you're using this with a client, perhaps spend some time unpacking what even is mindfulness before with you start. Yeah, before you start delving into how do you practice it or how could you practice it. Oh, absolutely. But also why why specifically might they need it? Mm -hmm. So I think one of the biggest problems of using mindfulness, like so many of the things we've discussed so far, is when people are simply using it as a selling tool and they're not necessarily asking why meditation or why mindfulness? What is the overarching goal? I mean, it's been pointed out that using mindfulness training programs or employing a mindfulness coach in order to achieve success you know, enhanced performance, enhanced productivity is actually completely antithetical to the original intentions, which are bound up with suffering, with both the understanding of suffering and the end of it. It's really a long bow to draw that that's somehow bound up with enhancing your performance, Mm. (laughs) you know. Um, So in light of that acknowledgement, there have been some studies, again, the measurements can always be interesting, but studies have been conducted that demonstrate that weekly meditation class Classes can actually increase people's compassionate response. But I think that that must be with loving kindness meditation, which is specifically a, th- a process in which you imagine feeling a sense of love and compassion for yourself and then outside of yourself to someone that you love and you envision them and then outside of to somebody that you might not feel, you know, that you like. And then outside of that to someone that you don't like and then building that outwards until Mm. it's the whole of humanity. So that's in a way, I guess, to use the language of programming for the brain, which I don't like doing, but people talk about as rewiring your brain in order to have your attention drawn to feelings of compassion. So, of course, I mean, that would be the goal. But again, completely distinct from honing your performance. Yes. Which, if it is about honing performance, maybe that's a legitimate use for mindfulness practice within the the coaching space. Well, I don't see how that could hone your performance. Not specific loving kindness meditations, but maybe some form of mindfulness practice would. Well, it would in the sense that... I mean, a huge part of performance coaching is getting people to be aware Mm. somatically what's going on for them. Yeah, manage anxiety. That's right, manage reactivity so that they're able to get into uh, their performance space before Mm -hmm. they have to give a talk, give a performance, fight, play, whatever they're doing. Absolutely, I think it can be used for that. But again, that would be attention training, wouldn't it? Well, it might be attention training or it might be the MAC approach, mindfulness, acceptance and commitment. 
moment. Now, the very first thing is mindfulness, which is just a noticing of your current physical, emotional state and not attempting to change that, but just being mindful of it. And in that noticing of it, Mm -hmm. you move on to the acceptance and then a recommitting to the goal. Yeah, so not, you know, I don't think that the performance base necessarily has to deal with attention training. I think no, but I think it's... that they really overlap, though, don't they? Because oh, yeah. you're actually paying attention in that in that mindfulness yeah, process. That's what you're doing is paying happening. attention to what's happening again somatically within your body. What's my breathing doing? Mm. What are my muscles doing? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think you can have attention training internally as well yes. as externally. But yeah, again, yeah. that depends on the practice, the practitioner, what you're doing, why you're doing it. Yeah. Last week, again with Alex, we talked about some of the dangers of mindfulness Mm. if they're not being scaffolded properly or if the people who are facilitating these practices don't have enough training themselves or if they're not being mindful even. It calls to mind my very dear friend who is living in Rome now and has just opened up his own school in which he's just started to teach mindfulness. He's been a practitioner. What he would call he has sat in retreats and... And he has practiced for well over 20 years and he's only now just recently been allowed to in his tradition go to programs which would allow him to learn how to teach mm. so it's been an incredibly long process so speaking to him people who just mm-hmm. call themselves mindfulness coaches because they've decided that that would be a good way to brand themselves is quite disturbing i can imagine And I think that goes to what Alex was saying too, doesn't it? That we've pulled this concept out of its context Mm. from two and a half thousand years ago. And I love the way Alex described it as like we've put our hook into it, Mm. you know, and and dragged it out Mm. and tried to plonk it. I think it must be very disturbing Mm. um, for for people like Mm. Fab, yeah? Fabrizio. (laughs) I love it. Um, Yeah, to hear that espousing, Mm. try this mindfulness training technique Mm. or I can come and do a two-hour workshop in mindfulness. Mm. I mean, you and I've talked about maybe we could do that but but we'd be doing it proper <laughs> yeah, that's right well he's also very much uh, he identifies very much as being a Buddhist so mm. he has that cultural okay. context yeah in which, right yes yeah so that all of the ethics that go along with that are very much bound up with his practice yeah and again I go back to you know when we were speaking to Michael and we got to the end and I think I said resilience does it just need to be called something else <laughs> has the word just become too synonymous with other things and it, you can't pull it apart Mm, disentangle it yeah i don't know i mean the word's never going to change well because i keep saying that about coaching (laughs) yes yes every time i see a coaching promotional video that makes me want to throw up then i feel like that can't be what we do because that's not what we do no yeah i don't know i just think sometimes it's too hard to disentangle it maybe let's just not do it we can't disentangle it because we don't control the world and we don't own the magic Mm. wand that tells everybody what they're allowed to do because we've both used it in our coaching and Mm. I think it can be used to really great effect but I think that you have to use it with an awful lot of nuance. It's interesting when I was in high school I used to study classical singing I honestly thought I was going to be an opera singer Mm -hmm. and my singing teacher Linda Moorcroft who since has done her PhD in the technique I'm going to tell you Mm -hmm. basically for 10 years took me through mindfulness training every day for at least 15 minutes as part of the singing lesson Mm -hmm. with the intention of reducing stress in the voice so if you're standing up with every breath you imagine that your body is elongating that 
you're growing roots deeper and deeper into the ground and that up above your breath is, is reaching all the way up to a star in the sky and what that ultimately does she hypothesized was to pull tension away from your vocal cords to open up your diaphragm and and do all these kind of things she was hooking her classical singers up to this amazing equipment for a phd and showing that these techniques genuinely did change the sound quality wow. of their voices so in that sense again in performance coaching those kind of techniques are incredibly useful for me as a really anxious kid it was just great because it chilled me the hell out you know i love how you said hell then instead of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was just those moments of being quiet, mm-hmm. noticing my breath, mm-hmm. and then that being scaffolded with a singing lesson, which was all about relatedness and competence and all those other things. It, that was a really healthy context. And she mm-hmm. never called it mindfulness, but ultimately that's what she was doing. What did she call it? Breathing techniques. Yeah, right. Okay. But it was all about noticing the breath. Yep. And visualizations and all those kinds of things. Yep. That's just a technique that she was employing. Mm. And she wasn't trying to sell it. You know, websites didn't exist back in the... When was I in primary school? 1942? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, you're looking good for your age. Thanks. Um, I think that's interesting that it wasn't called meditation. It wasn't called mindfulness. It was called a breathing technique. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the way I feel most comfortable using mindfulness in the coaching space could almost be called metacognition. And this is what I like about Michael and Gordon's chapter is they use the five reflective spaces to talk about how mindfulness might enter the coaching space. So they describe the coach's space within themselves, the coachee's space within themselves, Mm. the shared space of the coach and the coachee, the coach's relationship with their content, the coachee's relationship with their context, those contexts together, all of those interlocking circles. That's entirely about being metacognitive. That's Mm. about being aware of yourself in the room with the coachee, aware that you might be bringing into the room with you whatever's happened to you in that day or your entire life for that matter. That's all having an impact on how present you are with this person in this exact moment. I've lost concentration, I'm conscious I've lost concentration, I'm getting back on track. They go into great depth talking about, you know, how those five spaces might interact with each other in a mindful way and calling attention to it. I mean, they actually do speak about having a moment of taking a few mindful breaths before beginning a session. See, apart from that last part that you just said, because that's a practice, Yes, everything that they describe, which I'm 100% on board with, is reflective it's about being reflective and so in that sense mindfulness is sort of a technique because i know we were saying before that mindfulness was the state and meditation was the technique but here really mindfulness is the technique taking the breaths taking those moments in order to recognize the choice points that in order to have reflective practice and engage in reflective practice yes Mm. yeah so to come back to that's where i think it's important to have that distinction between what meditation mindfulness is because i think a lot of people think that you have to meditate to be mindful Mm -hmm. but that's not the case you can be mindfully driving your car you can mindfully eat you can 
have mindful sex like you can you know yeah i mean that's the part that ultimately reflects mindfulness being the antithesis of mindlessness yes and that's where a lot of people who are practicing it well are drawing attention to what we talked about in the last episode which is that we are living in very specifically mindless times not that humans are any dumber because we know that humans are actually getting a lot smarter but we're just getting so much more overstimulated yes that doesn't really allow for that level of attention training so as we said when you get on a train or a bus everyone's you know heads down phones on not paying attention to what they're doing i was watching a television show the other day and i was i was so struck by the emotional cues that it kept giving telling me exactly when i'm supposed to feel happy and when i'm supposed to supposed to stop feeling happy and feel worried it's like wow i can just be on autopilot i don't have to think at all wow (laughs) really try but so you had to be mindful to even notice that that's what it was doing to you if you were completely mindless you would have just been taken on that journey whereas you were metacognitive in that moment and thought wait a minute this is what's happening to me in this Mm. moment so you were being mindful and that's probably what as coaches in the sense that we use the word coaching we're trying to help people Mm. to be which is more analytical more reflective Mm. to try and bring a sense of mindfulness to uh, a modern mind that could otherwise be a little bit overwhelmed with stimulation yeah absolutely i think i I completely agree with you when you're describing you know everyone on the train on their phones and that we are always complaining about being overstimulated or overwhelmed or there's too much complexity and yet when we have a moment where we don't have to have that we create it for ourselves we create the noise because the alternative is scary scary i know exactly so i do think we need to be mindful of trying to create those moments of silence for our oh, yeah. clients if they haven't been used to that for a while. But also, I think it's important to get an understanding of where they are in terms of knowing what thinking is. And now that sounds really crazy, but we do know that a lot of people have just simply not thought about thinking before. <laughs> so if you've never thought about thinking and then you bring somebody's attention to their thoughts, that can cause a bit of an existential crisis for them because they think, I have thoughts? Mm. What? You what know? do you mean? Yeah, I can watch them? What the? And then they might actually start to watch them and they might be saying things that are incredibly disturbing. Mm. Yeah, I think it's important to be aware of that. Mm. I mean, talking about how mindfulness can be used in coaching, what I think is really interesting, and you wrote a really excellent paper on this is the relationship between mindfulness and Keegan's order of mind yeah so the adult development theory when we are coaching developmentally which is what we do a lot that's what that is is helping people to shift their understanding from subject to object Mm -hmm. yeah mindfulness can be very useful in that context if we look at mindfulness as as a practice which builds both decentered awareness and attention, mm-hmm. then surely it can assist people in observing experiences from an objective position rather than viewing them subjectively. That's right. To view experiences more objectively, being able to view emotions, sensations without identifying with them, that sort yes. of dispassionate observation, which is really an important part of moving from third order to, third order fourth, to fourth order. order. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, I think probably the thing that I came across most when I was writing that was that where those two can intersect, those two concepts, I suppose, mindfulness and orders of mind, is in the fact that sometimes making that developmental shift from stage three, which is socialized, socialized, which is where the thoughts and opinions of others are sort of the guiding force in your life which is supposed to be adolescent stage because teenagers absolutely do need to associate with their peers that sense of belonging yeah Yeah. but we learn that most adults yeah they're still in that phase yeah absolutely and it can be really uncomfortable moving from that very comfortable phase to stage four which is uh, the self-authored mind which is where you internalize you have an, an internal set of values beliefs that's your governing system i suppose as opposed to i'm doing this because this is what my family wants or this is what my friends are doing and where i think the intersection is really interesting is the fact that you obviously have to have a certain level of metacognition mindfulness to even notice that you are subject to the thoughts and feelings and desires of a group of others. You have to have that moment of, I actually refer to it as um, zooming out from yourself. I've actually used it with clients. I've described it as Google Earth. You know, like <laughs> That's you're, good. You're Google Earthing yourself mm. out from your space and looking at how all the parts go together. And then what do I, well, hang on, what do I think in this situation? What do I think is important? It stands to reason that you need a certain level of metacognition, mindfulness, whatever to be able to recognize that you've even been subject to that before you can make a shift to anything else. Yeah. And in that sense, then mindfulness can certainly be a very useful part of developmental coaching. Yeah. And also the ability to sit with the tension that that creates. Absolutely. Uh, That's coming back to mindfulness of the coach too, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Because the coach has to sit with that tension as well. And not want to rush through it Mm -hmm. and say, whoops, oh, we're entering something that's a bit tricky here. I want to, let's move on to something more positive. But again, you have to be mindful of the fact that there even is tension. There even is tension. (laughs) And that you're feeling it. Because I think... Yes. That, that just what we've talked about in terms of being reflective and being mindful for me that's the key thing that I'm constantly trying to work on in the coaching space because I can I sometimes get very stuck in my own thoughts which obviously prevent you from being as active a listener as you could mm-hmm. or you're thinking I'm already thinking of solutions for this person without mm-hmm. thinking hang on a second mm-hmm. <laughs> this mm-hmm. isn't even anything to do with me I'm facilitating right. their own solutions here Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's scary to think how many coaching sessions would be going on out there with a coach not even being mindful that that's what's happening. That they're ultimately mentoring, not coaching. That's right. Mm. And but actually thinking, I'm doing a great session here. Look what I just created for that person. How well did I just solve that problem? Cha-ching. Cha-ching. <laughs> Whereas you might have just completely missed an entirely different conversation mm. simply because you were not on your own agenda and you weren't being mindful. Or paying attention yeah. to yourself and your own sensations yeah. and your own Those thoughts. reflective spaces. Yep. So in terms of cultivating awareness or or choice points, because I really like that term, for coaches that helps us to avoid rushing to closure. As, as you said, because we can notice if we're, if we're feeling a desire to do that or rushing to, for somebody to locate a goal where yes. they may not actually be remotely interested in that. That might not be intrinsic for them at all. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I've got to say something. Okay, let's just finish this. Yeah. Let's tie it up. Yeah. Quick, everyone's paying for this. It's got to be, yeah. you know, avoiding <laughs> yeah. overusing tools or techniques because yes. it's just like that one size fits all. Yes. You've got to stop and think. Again, that's about reflective practice too mm-hmm. and supervision. 
Because if you've got a good supervision group and you're saying to them, oh, and then I use this tool, they'll point out to you, gee, you sure do use that a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Mm. Just in terms of you speaking about zooming out, it reminds me of the very first time, this is going back now in the conversation a little bit, but the very first time I noticed my own thoughts. I remember it so specifically because I have this really visual image of what it entailed for me. I was reading something about mindfulness and and I thought, okay, well, I'm supposed to look at my own thoughts. The image that I got was of opening up the door to a kitchen and my mind was this cheeky little child on the floor and had pulled out all the pots and pans and it was just smacking the crap out of them and it was just sitting there playing the drums on these pots and pans and it looked up at me with this kind of shock, like, oh, you've never been in here before. And then it just went to smacking the pots and pans again. Like you were busted. Like it was busted. Like, like you busted yourself. Oh, I busted myself. That's what my thoughts are doing. And then it just ignored me again, start smashing them. So it's not like I suddenly found this moment of nirvana and enlightenment. It was like, oh, you're the little guy on the floor making all that ruckus. That is hilarious. <laughs> I love that. See, this is what I mean, right? So now if you're, if you're my client, my coachee, and I say to you, I, I think mindfulness practice might help you here or being more mindful might help you here. What's your experience with that, Ben? Like you can see how then you say, well, I did read this book once and while I was reading the book I had this moment of seeing my... I've never experienced that before. So how can I possibly understand that unless I ask you what that experience is like? Sure. And then what does that mean for you going forward? How does that impact on the way you view mindfulness? Is it a playful thing? Mm. Is it something that's always been there but you haven't been conscious of it because you've been trying to be an adult? Like, yeah, that's you know? right. I have not. <laughs> you've been adulting. You? Yeah, I just think oh, that's a classic case in point of mm. it's so different for everybody whereas I completely imagine Google Earthing myself and almost things being in slow motion that everything slows down like the matrix the matrix matrix. yeah that's it's sort of like that for me except without all the code but where I suddenly everything slows down and I can say oh I can actually choose my response in this moment I'm not a hostage to my feelings and emotions I can choose how I respond yeah I think when I find myself personally practicing what I would call mindfulness in the context of what you and I have been discussing it's much more akin to what you're describing now I guess that moment I described was more me becoming aware of the fact that I have thoughts and mm. and not identifying with those thoughts is actually mm-hmm. seeing them mm-hmm. as totally distinct from Separate. myself. Okay, okay. So with a client, I would probably ask them, have you had any experiences where you have stepped back and observed your thoughts before? Because I know for sure if they haven't or if they look at me like I'm crazy, then doing any kind of mindfulness technique could potentially be... It's lost. Lost or really destructive. Yeah. Because they could have some kind of existential... That's true. Um, ...moment, you know, because we've heard of those stories where those... Yes, that's right. ...they do actually happen. So actually it's one step removed then, isn't it? It's like one step before saying, what's your experience with mindfulness practice been? It's what's your experience with thinking about your thoughts? That's it. And then I guess that's the mindfulness, the internal one. It's not the attention training that we were talking about. So the mm. attention training you could do with somebody like that because it's simply mm-hmm. focusing on the breath, or focusing on the sounds that are in your immediate vicinity, then moving to a bit further away and a bit further away and getting somebody to build up ultimately what is that attention muscle Mm -hmm. so that they can be more attentive to feelings as Mm -hmm. they're arising. But that's a very different thing. And like we were talking about before, in, in CBT, sometimes 
it's just assumed that somebody can identify their automatic negative thoughts and that then we can just simply supplant those with positive thoughts or helpful thoughts. But, you know, some people genuinely aren't aware of the fact that they're having thoughts and that's not a sign on their intelligence that's just a sign on where they have been in Mm. life yeah if you can't even identify your thoughts you certainly can't challenge them no or replace them no and i think as any practitioner it's important to identify their background identify their needs Mm. shall we finish on some positive uses for mindfulness or at least some things to really consider What are some things that you think it's important as coaches to consider when we're employing the practices of, let's call them mindfulness, attention training, mindfulness meditation, any of the things we've discussed? Yeah, metacognition. I think we've got to meet the client, coachee, where they are at. And to do that would be to say, if I say mindfulness, if I say reflective practice, if I say metacognition to you, what does that mean for you? And what if they say to you, as a lot of people I know would, yeah, that's like crystal coaching, frou-frou, la-la. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in that. Don't make me breathe. <laughs> yeah. I've had that before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think then that opens a whole very interesting conversation about what mindfulness is and isn't. For myself, the thought of meditating for me was completely abhorrent. Like, mm. I just couldn't think of anything worse than sitting still for 10 minutes a day with my thoughts. I don't think what I understood at that point in time was that what it was affording me was having more mindful moments when I wasn't meditating. And ever since then, that's probably what I've been looking for is the everyday mindful moment in the midst of chaos. Now, when you're when you're saying that, can I just check? Because for me, that means two different things. It means the thing that my beautiful late father gave me as a child, which was to always be paying attention to beauty Mm -hmm. in the world. And when you see a beautiful leaf or a beautiful moon, to stop, to savour it. Um, And in that that sense, I guess that's a positive psychology intervention I didn't even realise I've been doing on myself my whole life (laughs) just because that's what he taught me to do. But then the other one, I guess, is what I find myself doing, particularly in relation, in my relationship and in, you know, friendships, etc., is that when I find myself reacting, mm-hmm. I will try to be aware of the fact that I'm reacting mm-hmm. and to take a moment to try something different. Yes. And to not say what my automatic response would be, but to take a breath mm-hmm. and to try and say something else or to say nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So do zoom you mean, out. Zoom out. <laughs> do you mean both of those things? Do they both cover what you're talking about? Yeah, a mixture of both. But I don't think you can have either of those if you aren't able to be mindful, receptive, whatever you want to call it, mm. metacognitive. I don't think you can savour without being mindful. But you can certainly savour and be emotionally reactive. I know I have certainly known people who are capable of savouring the beauty in the world and can still be very much a slave to their emotions and their reactions. Yes. So I don't think there's this this magic bullet. Mindfulness, in that sense, is multifaceted in a way. So what do you think? Well, I mean, I've actually written a little list of things that I think coaches should consider. The first one is to consider, you know, why are you employing mindfulness techniques? Mm -hmm. What's the purpose? Mm-hmm. What's the intended outcome? Don't just use it as a one-size-fits-all because it certainly Because everyone's doesn't. doing it. That's yeah. right, exactly. What's the psychological background of the client? Mm-hmm. And is it safe and is it ethical mm-hmm. to engage practices that may get them thinking about their thoughts? How is the practice being scaffolded? Mm-hmm. Is there a support system in place? 
consider the broader system. Specifically, when we're looking at organisations, stress is not created solely within the individual. Mm-hmm. Stress is created internally and externally. Yes, so key point. The fourth one I'd say is make mindfulness one part of a more complex intervention. So that four-factor mm-hmm. model that we like so much yes. of leadership has mindfulness combined with positivity, purpose, and perspective-taking capacity. Mm-hmm. So don't just focus on the mindfulness as the sole technique. Weave it into other things for other mm-hmm. purposes. My final point is more about organizational coaching. Mm -hmm. What are the values around which mindfulness is being framed? Are you engaging in critical inquiry? Are you asking difficult questions? Whose interests are being represented? Are you taking a systemic view? Have clients taken a systemic view? I would argue that if it's used well, mindfulness practices can help to increase ethical sensitivity and perspective taking capacity, but they need to be framed in that context. Mm. So final point from me would be maybe if we're going to employ mindfulness techniques, and I do think we should, then we should not only focus on bringing awareness to the causes of clients' internal suffering, but the external suffering Mm -hmm. that they're both experiencing and potentially even contributing to Mm -hmm. within their own system. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Your list is much better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) What you said... (laughs) I agree entirely. <laughs> Do you think it's fair to ask clients to be mindful of the system in which yes. they're contributing to, not just which is impacting them? Do you think that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's an ethical responsibility for humans. I know a lot of coaches would say, that's not my job. My job is to be there for the client and for the client's well-being. But I certainly would see it as my role to facilitate that person to see the part they play in whatever system they're in. You're not an island. Your very existence is having an impact on people around you. Some people are certainly having more of an impact on the existence of others than other people people are are. Uh, yeah are they i sometimes think the people who think that they aren't powerful at all are the most powerful (laughs) in terms of the impact they're having on people sure but having just come out of a banking royal commission (laughs) i mean we don't certainly don't have to go into that but coaches who are working with executives in that space should they be asking the challenging questions to help enhance people's perspective-taking capacity and to help them be mindful of the system? Is that part of our job as coaches? I don't see why it shouldn't be. I can understand why a lot of people would shy away from it. Mm. I think if you go back to ethical leadership, that's the sort of thing that people are seeking help with. So Uh, coaches may actually be well-placed to help shift ethical perspectives for the better. Yeah. What a lovely place to leave it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mel. And again, as always, if you have any questions, if you disagree enormously with what we've said, (laughs) we we always welcome that. And you can email us anytime at info at space to think dot net. That's to the number. Talk to you next time on the Coaching Kool-Aid.